Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. This is God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. Last week, we spoke about false teaching. As I said, not a glamorous topic, but a very important topic to talk about. And we looked at the mandate upon us, particularly elders and pastors, people in leadership, but really upon all people who would profess to follow Jesus, to have a great concern for the purity of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints and to fight for it. So to resist false teaching, to correct it wherever possible. And that's really the task, uh, one of the dominant tasks that Paul's giving to Titus, to rebuke what is wrong, to correct what's going wrong in this unhealthy culture, and then to instruct in what is right. And from verse 12, where we finished off last week, Paul is still following the same train of thought. He's still on false teaching, but he's expanding his... Uh, train of thought, so to speak, to include the wider Cretan culture. What was going on in the Cretan context? And it's not really good if you read through the passage. Uh, And the issue here is that the Cretan culture is influencing those who are in the church. So Paul is obviously not uh, primarily concerned about the wider culture in general for people who don't profess to follow Jesus. I think to the uh, letter to the Corinthian church, Paul makes it very clear in distinguishing and saying to Christians, hey, don't you realize that you are supposed to judge one another in the church for each other's good? And if there's someone who is perpetuating really unhealthy things, you cast them out, stay away from them if they are unrepentant. But then he says, not talking about everyone, you'd have to leave the world if that was the case. There's obviously a distinction between those in the world who don't profess to follow Jesus, but those who do. And this is Paul's concern here, that the wider culture is influencing the inner culture of those who profess to follow Jesus. So Paul here is calling Titus to correct the false teaching, but then also the wayward disciples. Disciples who have sort of gone off track because they are influenced by the false teaching. And he gives this scolding cultural assessment, but he's very wise, very politically correct, you might say, to not say it himself. He actually takes a Cretan philosopher and says, this is what this guy says. So I'm not saying it, I'm just saying, I'm just affirming that this is true. You're liars and lazy evil beasts 
This has been part of your culture for hundreds of years. And Cretan culture was notoriously disobedient and unruly. The Greeks at the time actually made up a verb that meant a liar and a cheater. So someone who lies and cheats. And it was called to Cretizo after Cretan. So they actually made up this verb. If you were like a really scummy person, you crate Cretizo. That's, that's how um, influence, that's how much influence this uh, unruly culture had on the world at the time. And unfortunately, it seems that this unruly and disobedient culture has crept into the church. And there is always a danger when the church begins to resemble the wider culture. And we should similarly, because that's what's happening here, and as we read this, we should also discern ourselves and to examine where perhaps there are things about our culture that are actually, that resemble the wider culture rather than having the countercultural identity that followers of Jesus have always had. So there is an issue when that happens, when the uh, distinction between the church and world becomes so corroded that all of a sudden it's really difficult to tell where the church starts and ends and where the world starts and ends. And what usually happens when this, when churches are so influenced by a worldly way of thinking, is that all of a sudden righteousness seems weird and sin seems normal. And that's usually what happens. And that's largely what this passage is about. Paul is trying to recover true discipleship. He's trying to recover what it looks like to truly be a follower of Jesus, not just a follower of the Cretan culture. And the two main lenses that Paul uses here for true discipleship, and really what I want to look at today, so rather than focusing upon all of the wrongs that are here, I want to look deeper at what Paul is saying in uh, avoiding the wrongs and looking at what true discipleship is through these two lenses, one of which is soundness in faith and the other is purity in life. And these are the two lenses that Paul is using to approach true discipleship amidst a pagan culture. Soundness in faith and purity in life. So let's first look at soundness in faith. I'm getting this from verse 13 where uh, after Paul gives this scolding assessment of Cretan culture, he tells Titus to rebuke those who are following an unhealthy way of life, to actually do it sharply, so that so the reason for the rebuke and the correction is so that they may be sound in the faith. And the word for sound in the faith is healthy. It's a word that just means being healthy in faith. And the first and obvious application to this is directly to false teachers to not teach false doctrine. That's unhealthy. The application, of course, for teachers to teach healthy doctrine, to teach sound doctrine. And of course, in Paul's context, this means doctrine that is rooted in the scriptures, which at this stage is really the Old Testament and the verbal, the oral uh, apostles teaching that has been handed down. At this stage, as Paul's writing to Titus, there's a few letters, possibly a few gospels and uh, early letters like 1 and 2 Thessalonians that are circulating around a bit. But by this time, it's really Paul saying, make sure teaching is rooted in the Old Testament and what Jesus has revealed to us through the apostles' teaching that has been handed down that is Scripture because it's divinely inspired. So that's healthy teaching. But I want to look mostly at 
applying this to the wider church culture? What does it mean to be healthy in faith for all of us? What does it mean to be healthy in faith for just uh, your average punter, so to speak, your, your follower of Jesus? Not necessarily a teacher, but someone who is following Jesus and needs to be healthy in faith. It's interesting that Paul uses the word healthy. Of course, when we think about uh, a healthy physical diet, if you want to have a healthy physical diet, then you, of course, need to eat things that are nutritious, that are rich in the right vitamins. So you're not going to have a diet that consists largely of Big Macs and thick shakes and then try and eat a carrot at the end of the day and somehow think that that makes you healthy. The emphasis upon the majority of your diet needs to be healthy. You need to have nutritious food. And then of course you can have a little bit of a treat every now and then, but if your diet consists mostly of treats and then you have a little bit of health, that's not healthy. So when we think about a healthy spiritual diet, what is it that occupies your thoughts? What is it that you give your attention to? Is your attention given mostly to junk food, mostly to superficial conversation, general socializing that everyone does, a lot of screen time, and then like 5% of what you are taking in is perhaps time in God's word, some intentional prayer, but really the bulk of your spiritual diet, you are giving yourself to streaming shows, general socializing, mindless entertainment. And that is like someone having a physical diet of absolute filth and eating a cucumber for like 5% of their diet and assuming that that makes them healthy. That's unhealthy. Healthiness in the faith is to have the majority of your life to be centered around what you are taking in, to be godly things, things that honor the Lord, intentional time in the word and prayer, spontaneous time in the word and prayer. And of course, doing that in a community of God's people where you are gathering together, where you commit wholeheartedly. And if the majority of what you are taking in is healthy, then that actually allows the unhealthy stuff that inevitably will come in not to become the center of your life. Whereas if the majority of your time is not given to these intentional spiritual disciplines, to catching up with people, to socializing, but actually doing it so that you can stir one another on to Jesus, to love him more. If that's not central, then of course, everything else that's unhealthy will then become central to your life. And that's unhealthiness in the faith. So healthiness in the faith is to be intentional in what we are consuming. So a good moment of examination and reflection is just to think, what are you actually taking in? We spoke about this when we went over Galatians. What is set before you? Like, what is it that occupies your thoughts through the day? What are you set before you? Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? Another aspect of being sound in the faith is the right devotional direction. Notice that Paul says, after verse 13, when he says, make sure that people are sound in the faith, he says, that means not being devoted to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away 
from the truth. This is what soundness in faith is not, being devoted to these things. Devotion is a zero-sum thing. You, you don't have an infinite supply of devotion. So whatever you give your devotion to, inevitably it has to get taken away from something else. Devotion uh, is not something that we have an infinite supply in. So if you are giving your devotion to unprofitable and unhealthy things, then of course it's taken away from what is profitable and what is healthy. You don't have an infinite supply of devotion. And here Paul is concerned with these people giving their devotion to unprofitable things. They are giving their devotion to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. Now, what are Jewish myths? What's Paul's real concern with these Jewish myths that are going around? It's difficult to know exactly what they are, but what is clear is that they are unhelpful and unprofitable stories from Jewish culture, from the Jewish tradition that are outside of Scripture that may or may not be true. They may be true, but they are myths, so they are similar to old wives' tales that have been handed down from generation to generation. And the main idea that Paul's getting at is that they are purely speculative. They're not what we should be being devoted to. They're not what, would, what should consume our devotion. I think a modern equivalent for this is where people focus on certain ideas or stories in a fanciful and unhelpful way way, like uh, spending all of your time investing in whether the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast or whether certain other things are either healthy or unhealthy, like crunching numbers to work out when Christ's return is going to be, when we clearly know that no one knows the day or the hour. They are things that if we give our devotion to them, they're just unprofitable. There's not much substance to them. The substance is in Christ and investing our time in a deeper understanding of Him. So there are other things that may not be bad in and of themselves, but Paul's concern here is that you're just devoting yourself to unprofitable and unhealthy things in a speculative way. You can't ultimately know that. So why wouldn't you focus on what you can know, which is Jesus Christ, because God has revealed Him to us. So the point is that it's pure speculation. It's the wrong devotional direction. And the other thing taking their devotion here is these commandments of people who turn away from the truth. Now, this uh, phrase here, commandments of people who turn away from the truth, could also be translated as commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And if you think of commandments of men, you might think of some other passages in Scripture that come to your mind, like Jesus in Mark 7, where he is quoting from Isaiah 29, and he is rebuking the Pharisees, and he is saying, your worship is vain. What Isaiah prophesied about you is right. Your worship toward me is vain. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines or teaching the doctrine, the commandments of men. 
So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees saying, you're merely following these commandments of men, not the commandments of God. And what he's saying there is that at the time, the Pharisees, of course, had taken the commands of God and they had added to them commandments of men, but they had certainly been elevated to a place of the commandments of God. They were a legal requirement to follow. So it became this moralistic pursuit of religion that uh, reduced following the Messiah down to a list of do's and don'ts. So for example, for the Sabbath, you have God's command to keep the Sabbath, but what the uh, rabbis at the time did in creating the Mishnah, which is like a Jewish commentary, is they added literally hundreds of laws to the Sabbath to make sure that people keep it. And what happened is they added all of these laws where not only could you break the Sabbath, but you couldn't do anything that looked like you were breaking the Sabbath, even if you weren't. So for example, children couldn't climb trees because they might break a branch and in breaking a branch, it might look like they're reaping branches for fire. And this was law. So they added these commandments of men, they'd reduced it so much to this just legal list of do's and don'ts. And in following these commandments of men, the people of the time, and still to this day, miss out on one of the major points of the gospel, which is that it is primarily not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us. And commandments of men and adding them to the level of God's law obviously undoes what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that's Jesus' concern here with the Pharisees. They're just merely following commandments of men. And so this may be what Paul is alluding to here, where he says the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. It's the wrong devotional direction. So our modern equivalent to this can certainly be where we reduce the Christian life down to simply church and small group attendance, serving on a team, trying to stay away from obvious moral failures like adultery and swearing too much. And that's kind of the idea. And that is really where we are most affirmed when we are doing these things. And the problem is that we're doing these things as a tick box to tick off the spiritual to-do list. And that affirms our place as followers of Jesus. So superficially, it looks like a form of devotion. I mean, those are good things to do, right? You don't, you don't want to not do those. Superficially, it looks like a form of devotion, but really, it's simply lip service without a heart that is given toward God. It's what Jesus is describing for the Pharisees here. When you reduce the Christian life as just this list of to-dos, do's and don'ts, and so your uh, when you are most upset and most unsettled in your spiritual life, it's where perhaps you're not meeting the commandments of men that you have placed in. Or where you only ever feel affirmed if you are passing these lists that you have created in your mind. And the key here is that the heart is far from Christ. It takes the form of worship, but like Jesus says here, it's just lip service. They honor me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. The right devotional direction is where Christ so penetrates the exterior of your life 
to take deep root in your heart where all of a sudden the direction of your life is totally geared toward Christ knowing him and loving him more and more seeking an intimacy with him and that's the direction of your life that's where all of these external things that are right and proper for us are no longer seen as a to-do list to sort of keep God at arm's length, so to speak. Like when I'm doing this, then God can't really demand much of me because I'm meeting what he requires of me. It's not letting Christ take deep root in your heart and be totally laid bare before him. Instead, if Christ has penetrated your heart, these things are then seen through the lens of a deep and intimate relationship with Christ. So, for example, church attendance, which is obviously a good thing. I don't want people to not attend church. But church attendance should no longer simply be the place where Christians go to on a Sunday, where we serve on a team and we feel spiritual through good music, good coffee and just general socialising. It shouldn't be geared toward that. It should be geared toward this essential thing where we meet with brothers and sisters in Christ to stir each other on, to worship the risen Christ. And I could not bear to be without it, not because it affirms me spiritually, because it's in that place with brothers and sisters that we worship the risen Christ where he's present in a particular way. And that is absolutely life and death to me. It's all geared toward a deep devotion to Christ and intimacy. So this is soundness in faith, a healthy diet that is centered on Christ and the right devotional direction. And this is largely what Paul is trying to correct here with these people that are way off. True discipleship is soundness in the faith, healthiness that will will manifest in the right devotional direction where a heart is not distant from the Lord, but it is seeking intimacy with our Savior. Now, Paul gives another lens for true true discipleship, and this is purity in life. So look at verse 15. Paul says here, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See, the great barrier to a sound or healthy faith is an unclean conscience. That's the barrier, and I believe that's why Paul addresses this here in the context of wayward disciples, and he talks about purity. And he says the issue is when people's consciences are so defiled that there is an impurity to them. Now, your conscience in this context is your ability to know what is right and what is wrong. That's your your conscience biblically. We all have a conscience, Paul is very clear to say in Romans 2, that even Gentiles who don't know, necessarily know, through special revelation, the, the Messiah, they actually know in their conscience what is right and what is wrong. The issue is that the conscience becomes defiled. It is impure. Something is wrong with it. So someone with a defiled conscience doesn't have the inner faculty to really know what is right and what is wrong and follow what is right. The conscience is unclean, so everything else becomes distorted. 
Now, if we look back at Jesus' words in Mark 7, which we referred to before, where he's talking to the Pharisees, he actually sheds a lot of light on this topic. This is where uh, Jesus says, Their hearts are far from him. Their worship is simply in vain. This is what God had said through Isaiah. And he then goes on to demonstrate that the real issue for those Pharisees and for everyone to this day is that there has been no internal transformation. Nothing has happened internally. So Jesus goes on to say to the Pharisees, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but things that come out of a person defile him. This is because the Pharisees looked at the disciples and said, why don't you go through the proper hand-washing routine? You're defiling everything. And Jesus says, that's not right. It's not what's outside that comes in that defiles. Purity has nothing to do with external actions, whether in this context it is with hand-washing or whether in our context it's someone with an unclean heart trying to make themselves clean by attending church, serving on a team, doing these things, or a few charitable deeds, giving to the homeless. That doesn't change an impure conscience. The heart of the problem is the problem with our hearts. So Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. He goes on to say a lot more, but basically all of those things happen because inside of you there is an undefiled conscience. There's something impure. And these are what defile a person. And so that's why Paul says to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They turn everything into something impure. It's nothing that glorifies God. Everything inevitably becomes impure. The problem is internal rather than external, which means that you cannot change anything externally to fix what is wrong internally. So the problem is internal rather than external. And there is a solution to this. The solution can only come through a deep internal change. So I want to look now through the writer of Hebrews at how someone can actually get to this place of to the pure, all things are pure. Because we are all through sin influenced by this defiled conscience. And sometimes it lingers. And there is a solution to this. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 addresses this. And in Hebrews 9, verse 9, the author says, according to the Old Testament system, so basically the author is talking about this complex sacrificial system, everything that was done under the Old Covenant where you had to go through a complex routine of sacrificing bulls and goats and all sorts of things in order to make yourself clean because there were all sorts of things that you could do that made yourself unclean and you had to go through this routine, the sacrificial system to then be clean again. And the author is saying, according to this system, all of these things cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the author is saying that could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It was always a temporary thing. The sacrificial system couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshipper. No external action could actually 
make that person clean inside. Something much deeper has to happen. And so from verse 11, he says, when Christ appeared, this changed everything. When Christ appeared, he completed a purifying work that none of our external religious acts could ever do. From verse 13, he goes on to say, if the blood of bulls and goats, so if the sacrificial system, if that could still provide some sanctification and purify the flesh, if that could at least bring unclean people back into the camp and it was just a bull or a goat, if that could actually provide some purity, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more will the blood of the Son of God, who did no wrong, purify our conscience from everything that is unclean? How much more will that happen? And this is the internal transformation. This is the whole foundation for true discipleship. This is why Paul addresses purity here, because if this has not happened, and if this has not been grasped, then everything we do will end up impure. This internal transformation has to happen when you grasp that Christ has done something incredible, when you grasp what he has done by becoming the once and for all offering for all of our guilt, sin, and shame, your conscience is then clean. Your conscience is clean because a defiled conscience is ultimately the result of sin. That's why we have a defiled conscience. Because the fall happened, Adam and Eve fell out of favor with God, sin passed down from every single person, every single human being, and we have a defiled conscience because of that. But when Christ entered into the depths of humanity and became the once and for all sacrifice, when he entered into the most holy place where the high priest would only enter once a year, and when he made that sacrifice, he washed over our sin because in his work on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. We, through his death, received his righteousness. Our conscience is then clean because sin no longer affects us in the same way. Before God, we are seen as holy, blameless and above reproach through Christ. That's the internal purification. And notice that the writer of Hebrews says, he purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? Dead works are what we see in Titus. They are anything that is done from a defiled conscience. Anything that is not done to the glory of God. It's dead works. It's why Scripture says all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. That's not talking about things we as believers do now because we can do them in the name of Jesus and they have God's favor upon them. That's talking about anything that is done for our own glory, apart from Christ. It's just rags, it's filthy rags. Because we're defiled by sin, our consciences are defiled. So if our church attendance is done merely for social purposes rather than to worship the living God, 
That's coming from a defiled conscience. It's a dead work. If our sacrificial giving, no matter how generous it is, is really to just wash over our guilt, then it's a dead work. If this deep internal transformation has not happened, then there will be no purity in the things that we do. It has to start from internal. If this hasn't happened, then everything else is impure. If Christ has not penetrated your heart to wash over all of your impure motives and wicked thoughts, to have them actually laid bare before Him, then everything else remains unclean. But when Christ does penetrate your heart, when you grasp this wonderful work of Christ by His blood covering up your evil conscience, our wicked thoughts, and actually realizing that everything is laid bare before Him, every single thought we have ever had that we would never, we like to um, confess the socially acceptable sins in the church environment that somehow make us look repentant, but really they're not going to make people look at us weird. But really, God knows every single thing that we have thought, all of the horrific thoughts that we have had, the things we have done in private, all laid bare, all covered by the blood of Christ. All of it. There's nothing so wicked and vile that the blood of Christ cannot cover. And this is what is transformative because then when you grasp this, you realize that there was nothing that you could ever do to make God affirm you. There was never any external action that you could do to make you actually have that guilt within you removed. There was nothing that you could ever do to have the favor of God upon you. Everything was a filthy rag to Him. But by the blood of Christ... All of your impurities are purified and you receive the status of Christ. Everything that he ever did is credited to your account so that now everything we do has God's favor upon it because we do it in Christ. We do it in him for his glory. So like Eric Liddell said when he was running in chariots of fire and he said, when I run really fast, I feel God's pleasure upon me. We feel the pleasure of God because we are doing it not for our own glory, but in Christ. And therefore everything is pure. To those who have been purified, everything is pure. This is the internal transformation. There is always a duty of obedience upon those following Jesus. But everything we do flows out of the blood of Christ. All of the joyful obedience, all of the gritty discipline that is absolutely necessary to follow Jesus. The wartime mentality that we should have is all done out of this foundation of the blood of Christ, where we remember that there was nothing that we could ever do to make ourselves pure, and now everything that we do has the pleasure of our Father upon us because we do them in Jesus Christ. I want to finish by reading out a quote from B.B. Warfield that is absolutely nourishing for the soul. Let me read this out. B.B. Warfield says, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. 
We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to Him or to God through Him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our development, past, present or future, because of which we are acceptable to God. It is always on the blood and righteousness of Christ that all of a sudden everything is acceptable to God. When done in Jesus and for his glory as consistent with his word, everything is done with his favor when we rest upon the blood and righteousness of Christ. That is our foundation. That's where purification happens. That's where everything becomes pure. That's the foundation of true discipleship. Anything that does not rest on that will become wayward and off track and prove to be false. But everything resting on the blood of Jesus will stand.